welcome, Conduit. So nice to see you all this morning. My name is Cameron. I'm um, one of the pastors here at uh, Conduit, and as as is our tradition, if you um, if you have been here a thousand times before, or if this is your very first time uh, worshiping with us, we welcome you home, and uh, we pray we pray that the Holy Spirit uh, does a mighty work in your heart and in your life today and this week. Uh, we pray towards that end regularly for you. If we've never met, we're praying for you. Um, we were praying for you this morning, in fact, downstairs, that everyone who walks through these doors today and um, you know worships with us and is a part of this community, that they would not be here on accident. And um, whatever those non-accidental factors or circumstances are that brought you here this morning, we welcome you. And uh, we, we're praying for you. Um, we're in uh, we're in the series or in a season of Lent, and in uh, you're not familiar with what Lent is. Lent is a, a essentially a, a forty day season of preparation prior to Easter, and it helps us to kind of um, take intentional steps to center our mind and to center our spirit. And to allow the Holy Spirit of God to work through His Word and to work through our faith in Jesus, kind of realign all that we are, our thoughts, right, our hearts, our bodies, even, um, to align all that we are um, with the work of Jesus on the cross and the resurrecting power of the Holy Spirit that brings Him back to life, which is obviously what we celebrate on Easter. And so our Lenten series this year um, has the title "Divine Interruption," and we've been talking about the ways where we've been talking about the ways or kind of the dynamic of how um, it's kind of a common thing, and we all can relate to it in some way, shape, or form. Where where we're all just moving, kind of at just at a breakneck pace in life. Some and sometimes, like if you're moving, if you're driving super fast down the highway it becomes really difficult to focus on the things that you're passing, right? It's just like a, you, you just zip right past them. They just like a, look like a line in your peripheral vision. And, um, and oftentimes what happens is that, 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 I mean, that's the way that we approach life, right? Just like moving forward as fast as we can for as long as we can. And we end up missing kind of the mile markers on the way that God wants to use to communicate to us or to to press something into our lives. And so what, we're, what we've been praying for and what we've been asking is we've been asking the Lord, Lord, would you kind of divinely and strategically interrupt the breakneck pace of our lives and of our minds and of our spirits so that we can be present to hear, Lord, and to act upon what it is you want to do in, in our hearts. Um, and so... This is, um, next week is the kind of the last, well, I, I won't say it's the last, but like, so this week we're going to talk about uh, that God, uh, through Jesus, kind of divinely interrupts what can sometimes be described as a, a search for significance or a desire for greatness. And, um, and what that means, and the, the ways in which Jesus did that next week, uh, which is Palm Sunday, uh, we will talk about the way that Jesus divinely interrupts our expectations of his lordship in our lives. I mean, everyone has an idea of what it means to follow Jesus. And sometimes we ask Jesus to be the Lord that we want him to be. But that's oftentimes a lot different from the Lord that we need him to be. Or the Lord that he he need he, that he wants to be, right? And so, how does how does our expectations of who Jesus is in our lives, and how does who he actually is, how do they like collide? And what do we do with that? We'll have a Good Friday service here, as is our tradition. Good Friday um, is at seven. Our Good Friday service is at seven p.m. We invite you to that as well. And then, of course, 
Easter Sunday. Our service will be at uh, will be at normal time, and um, the culmination of our series on divine interruptions is the way in which Jesus um, divinely interrupts our death. Something that is kind of normal on the path, normal right on the path of life, and we get to the end, the the apex of life, and and death occurs, and the way in which our faith in Jesus Christ and the work and person of Jesus Christ himself interrupts death so that we might experience true life. So I'm excited about the next few weeks. I hope that you, uh, I hope that you are as well. Um, if you didn't get an opportunity to grab one when you came in, I'll remind you of these little sheets that we've been providing for you throughout the series, just like it. It offers it offers to you an additional like spiritual practice to uh, use in your like quiet time with the Lord throughout the week uh, that's associated with the theme of what we're talking about each week. And so um, this week we're going to talk a little bit about practicing humility, um, which is all, always a interesting dynamic of a thing to talk about, right? Right, because when you talk about like, well, I'm you know, I just want you to know. I just, I just want you to know how humble I am. And, um, and the Lord's just done a great work of humility in my life, right? Because, and you're like, huh, well, like, I'm the most humble person that I know, right? It becomes an interesting dynamic of how do we talk about humility and how do we pursue humility and practice humility without sounding or being prideful. Right? And so we kind of ask the Lord to help us in that dynamic. And he sees our hearts. And, and generally, right, we can tell when that is the case. Um, so we'll be in several different um, passages of Scripture this morning, but mainly we're going to be in the Gospel of Matthew. All right, so if you're not familiar with the Bible, um, there are, are two main sections of your Bible. One is called the Old Testament, which sits in the front of your Bible. And the other is the New Testament, which is like the back third of your Bible, and the very first book of the New Testament is a gospel called Matthew, and uh, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 20, so you can just put your finger kind of in there, and um, we'll get started. This is not a trick question. Okay, it's really not. But who here, in whatever environment you find yourself in, in whatever position or place in life that you are at, who here desires in some way, shape, or form um, a position of significance? Some, some of you desire obscurity. Is that true? Right? This is not I'm saying this is not a trick question, right? We, we we come to a place in life where we have in, we have we're sitting in a place of influence, right? We may have just had influence even over our own families or our children, right? Or a spouse or a friend, right? Or our workplace, or maybe we own a business, or maybe we work for someone else, or maybe we're retired or whatever. But we all come to a place of like, hey, do I do I desire, do I desire a position of significance? When we're honest with ourselves and we think about it in as pure of a form as we possibly can, I think most of us say, yeah, yeah, I, I want to be significant. We certainly don't want to be insignificant, right? We, we certainly don't want to live per, in a perpetual state of like obscurity where we are not known, where we have no influence, where, where everything we do, we do doesn't matter at all. We want to have, we, we want to have significance. We want to have influence. We want to be able to lead others. The question really is not, hey, who wants it and who doesn't want it? Because I think we can all recognize in our hearts that we all do want it in some way, shape, or form. The question is, who, who among us gets to define what it means to be significant? What does it mean significant? And and what does it require of me? What does it require of you in order to get to the place of significance? In order to have influence 
in order to lead others, in order to not live in perpetual obscurity or insignificance. Because in a, in a society that is so sometimes radically and politically charged, we've all in some ways, some way, shape, or form been exposed to the idea of kind of like climbing the ladder, right? Biting and scratching and stepping your way to the top. In fact, in some environments, that's kind of like the understood norm, right? You, you start at the bottom of the ladder and your goal is to do whatever it takes to get to the top. But there comes a point, I think, like, maybe it's just a caricature of my own, like, mental thought process sometimes. Uh, There comes a point, kind of like, you know, that middle of the night, your room is super dark, you can't sleep, you're staring at your ceiling, you're counting all the significant ventures that you're a part of, and your place at the top of the ladder now, and, and you look back on what it's required of your soul, what it's required of your words, what it's required of your relationships, what it's required of the things that you've had to say no to, and the things that you've had to say yes to, and it just all feels a little dirty and gross and icky and just not right. In moments like that, there's a little like teaching moment, all right? In moments like that, um, recognize what that is, all right? We often think about like, well, I just couldn't sleep. I had so much on my mind. Like I was under so much, like all of these things that had been happening in my life and I was gaining, gaining clarity and things like that. And we're like, well, you'll have, you'll have conversations like that, right? And then on the other hand, you'll have a conversation about like, you know, I just wish God would speak to me more often. I just got, I wish God would give me, give me wisdom and give me direction and help me discern things in life. <laughs> when the reality is, right, it's in those moments, right, where we're, where we're cataloging the decisions that we've made or the relationships that we have or the things that have been done and we're at a place of feeling like, I like where I'm at, and the position has, like, I have significance. Maybe I don't like how I've had to get there or what I've had to do or who I've had to be in order to be there, right? And the Holy Spirit speaks, can speak conviction into our hearts to reveal the, the, ways, the ways in which or the direction in which he desires to t- us to turn towards Jesus. Because we come back to the question is not, not do we want significance, do we want influence, do we want a place where we can lead others, but what does it require of me to get there, and who gets to define ultimately what significance is? It's different for everyone. Okay? Um, the, the good news of this, the gospel news of this, right, is that this is not an experience or questions that are isolated to you and I or even us in this culture or this society. All the way back to the, to the um, culture of the disciples around Jesus. They were asking this kind of intrinsically or implicitly asking the same kind of question. We're gonna, we want to be significant. And then the corollary question of like, okay, who defines significance and how do we get there is answered in this little story here in Matthew chapter 20. So Matthew chapter 20, uh, verses 20 through 28. This is a little section, eight verses here. Really interesting, really interesting dynamic, okay? The mother of Zebedee's sons, so that's James and John, right? James and John's mom, came to Jesus with her sons and, kneeling down, asked a favor of him. What is it that you want? He asked. 
she said, Grant that one of these sons of mine, or grant that these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in the kingdom. Jesus responded, you you don't know what you're asking. Can you drink the cup that I'm going to drink? Oh, we can, they answered him. Jesus said to them, "You, you will indeed drink from my cup, but to sit at my right or my left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my father. When the ten heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. But not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. The question of significance was brought up, right? And Jesus, and he told you how to get there, all right? Um, But backing up into the story, um, there's some like kind of, I mean, if you're James and John, I would love to have known the the, the conversation that happened five minutes before this happened, right? Do James and John come up to their mom and be like, so mom, um, question for you. We know that if we go ask, right, we're scared. We don't know how to ask this question, right? Uh, it's kind of like, kind of like I, I don't know, sometimes um, one of my kids will come into the kitchen, right? And they will ask for something that I know they're not asking for themselves for, right? One of their siblings, one of their, is usually one of their older siblings, right? Has said, go ask dad for another donut. Something similar, right? And they come in and they ask, and you know, I'm being like, I'm not so sure you're actually the one that wants one, right? So like this whole dynamic between um, uh, James and John and their mom and Jesus is really, really interesting and should show us, if nothing else, that the disciples were, sometimes we romanticize people, individuals that we see in Scripture, right? But the disciples were in every way, shape, or form asking the same types of questions and dealing with the same cultural realities that we deal with now. The request was for a position or positions of prominence and power, right? Especially in ancient Near Eastern cultures, the idea of someone sitting at your right and sitting at your left, especially in the kingdom, as it says, right? Grant that these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom, um, indicates, right, that, that they, they anticipated that Jesus would be sitting essentially on the throne, right? Rightly anticipating that Jesus is the king, that Jesus is the Lord. And so then the request comes, grant that these two sons of mine would be your number one advisors, that they would be at your right, that they would be at your left, that there would be no one above them other than you, yourself, Jesus. Now, the response from Jesus is, I mean, it is what it is. It's interesting. How was, how did Jesus respond to this like straightforward request of we want power? We want significance. We want position and authority. And he says this, he basically says, do you have any idea what you're even asking? Do you know what you're asking. You don't, he, he says it like in an affirmative stance, right? Or in a declarative stance, you don't know what you're asking, but it's kind of like, it stands as kind of like this rhetorical question. Like, do you have any idea what it means to have a position of power or significance or authority 
especially according to kingdom values. See, I'm assuming that James and John, they had this understanding of what it meant to be significant and powerful and authoritative and have leadership and and and, and rule over people because they knew enough to ask. But the response of Jesus was, do you have any idea what it takes to get to that place? Because we think, we think generally that we know what it takes, right? We know what it takes to, to exert or to be in a position of power or authority. You know, it takes, it takes leadership. It takes, it takes grit. It takes, it takes being willing to do the things that no one else can do or will do or is willing to involve yourself in. It takes climbing that ladder. And on the way up the ladder, sometimes you got to climb over top of people, right? And to climb over top of people, sometimes you got to step on their fingers. And sometimes you got to stop, step on their heads, right? It doesn't really matter who you got to climb over on the ladder because if your goal is the position, if your goal is the power, if your goal is the ability to make all the decisions that you want, there's really no rationalization that you won't use in order to get there because that's your goal, right? But Jesus here uses the request of the disciples as a teaching moment to communicate that leadership, power, and significance in the kingdom of God is so much different, in fact, diametrically opposed to leadership in the world. So everything that you know and think and feel is necessary for you to climb the quote-unquote corporate ladder of the world, Jesus takes in this moment and he flips it totally upside down on his head, which is on brand for Jesus, right? And we talk about this all the time here, right? Because these are cultural cultural values, like kingdom cultural values that we're, that we're trying to inject and make a part of our lives as a Christian community here, Right? Not not to adopt values of the world, right? But to adopt the values of the kingdom. And, and the values of the kingdom are sometimes, and in many ways, completely different than the values of the world. And that's why when we that's why we stand on the truth of God's word when Jesus says, right? Um, like in order to be first, you need to be what? Last, right? And the rich will be poor, and the poor will be rich, right? That's why. All of Jesus' life in ministry is a contradiction from the values of the world. Exactly what that's exactly what Good Friday is, right? The world has the world has no category to put a crucified king into. To die in the most shameful way to be executed in the most shameful way by, by one of the most corrupt governments and kingdoms that, that ever was, right? To fall, to fall victim to that, right? The world would say, well, that's not much of a king. That's not much of a savior. That's not much of a Messiah, right? To take the, the values of the world, right? All of Jesus' life and ministry was a deconstruction of what the world says this is actual life. And he redefined it. And he's doing the same here with power. He's doing the same here with prominence. He's doing the same here with authority and leadership. Saying, listen, you think you know what it means to be in that place of leadership. It's actually something much, much different. Look in verse 25 of our scripture this morning. Actually, let's start at verse 24, okay? Um, this is like maybe not, not a super theological point. In fact, it's not a theological point at all, right? But if you, if you lead people, <laughs> if you have influence over people, right? Um, the active pursuit of trying to step over top of them to accomplish your goals does not engender a spirit of people willing to follow you. Right? Because it's like the 10. 
when the 10 heard about this, right? Can you imagine being one of the other 10 disciples and being like, no, you didn't, right? Right, like, what are they at? What, what, do you, what are you talking about, James and John? You enlisted your mom? They were indignant about this with the two brothers, right? A desire to pursue prominence and authority by unsavory means may get you to the place, right? But you know what's going to happen is you're going to turn around to see everyone who's following you and you're going to be you're going to you're going to um you're going to realize, right? That that no one wants to follow a person to a place like that. So Jesus brings them together. It's a good, it's a good opportunity, another good leadership-like skill of Jesus. Right? Brings them, gets them all at the table. Okay, we're going to have a little conversation about this. Right? Not a, you stupid fools, how dare you, you know? But like a, no, let's call them together, right? And then he explains this dynamic I just talked about. You know that the rulers of the Gentiles, I'm in verse 25, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles, he's talking about the Romans, right? Lord it over them and their high officials exercise authority over over them. The, the language here is, is specific and it's, it's, um, it's very clear in order to communicate a specific point, right? Jesus says like the Gentiles, they... They take their position of authority, the Romans, they take their position of authority and they use that position of authority to the word he uses is Lord, Lord over them. The word Lord is not, was not primarily, even in, in this context here, a theological term like we think of it, right? We think of Lord and we think it as like the same thing as God. It's, it's Lord, it's God, it's Jesus, right? The heavenly father. Same thing. It, in this context, it wasn't right. This was a this was the term of um, like governmental rule. Like you have a, like a lord over a manor, you have a lord over a land. You have essentially the supreme leader of that area, not to be questioned. Ultimate authority. Their, their word was, was the period and the exclamation at the end of every sentence, right? So when Jesus says, hey, the dynamic of the world is that, they, is, that, is that the world, they possess power and authority and they use that power and authority to control people and lord over them, to helicopter lead them in a not-so-gentle or kind way. They push their agendas, right? They have they have no really they have no regard for the people over which they're exercising their authority. The goal of eating is to exert power over those below you. That's the dynamic that Jesus offers here. He says that's the world. Get power and authority and exert it. Press it down. Get what you want. Use your position to your benefit. Lord it over them. Then what does Jesus say? Very next verse. Very, very clearly, four words, right? Not so with you. Not so with you. If there is any like flip-flop point where Jesus is like comparing and contrasting, right? This is like the transition statement. The world lords power and authority over others. Not so with you. Not so with us. Not so in the kingdom. And listen, when Jesus was 
to the disciples, not so with you, right? He was also saying to Cameron Lightheart, not so with you. And he was saying to everyone who believes by faith in him and calls themselves a disciple and desires that through faith in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit of God be transforming every part of who they are, their mind, their emotions, their body, their spirit, so that we follow him in faithfulness, that we live like him, we love like him, we serve like him. Hey, not so with you. When the world says it's this way, not so with you. We are in, we, we are um, drastically, unashamedly, like opposite side of the coin in, in virtually every way. Not so with us. If you want to become great, Jesus says, verse 26, not so with you. Instead, here's the, here, instead of lording over, instead, Whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be the first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus defines the very culture of his own leadership, right? Where at the beginning of this story, it's an unargued fact that Jesus is sitting on the throne in the kingdom. He is the, he is the king, right? He is the Lord. He is, he is the Messiah. And that's an unargued fact in the story here. Everyone believes it and knows it, including Jesus and the disciples and their mom, right? And everyone who's looking. It's known. Jesus is the Lord. And then at the end of the story, Jesus openly, right, and unashamedly declares and tells them, uses it as a teaching moment to say, hey, look, I'm the king. This is why I've come. Not to lord the position of king and Messiah and over the people in a way that exerts power. But I lead from a place of servanthood. We lead from a place of humility. We lead from a place of being in last position. And by leading from that place, it looks like to the world that we're leading from the back or we're leading from the bottom, right? But in, the, but, but, the, but in the kingdom, we're leading like Jesus leads. We're loving like Jesus loves. We're serving like Jesus serves. Listen, as followers of Jesus, as disciples of Jesus, it's not wrong. Listen, I want you to hear me really, really clear. It is not wrong to want to lead it is not wrong to have significant position. It is not wrong to be in a place of, like, maybe in your organization or your business or your, like, it is not wrong to be in a place of ultimate authority. It is not wrong to be or occupy those positions. But it is wrong to get there at the expense of others or to use that position as a way to create power for yourself at the expense of others. That is exactly towards. As followers of Jesus, as members of his kingdom, he sits on the throne, right? We must see our places of leadership and authority and significance as the place from which we are positioned perfectly to serve others, to love others, and to protect others. Our positions, our leadership, the places of significance that we have found ourselves resting in exist 
for the purposes in God's kingdom to serve and love and cherish those that we're in community with. And of course, there is no greater example than Jesus. We're in Matthew's gospel today, right? Or right now. But perhaps, and if you're in the leadership school here, you'll know that we talked about this little section of Scripture the very first week in John chapter 13, right? Where we see something happen in the dynamic of Jesus' leadership that is so indicative of the spirit in which his authority takes towards other people. All right, so you're in Matthew. We're going to flip over three books to the Gospel of John, okay? John chapter 13. And a little background story, okay, or a little background. This is right before Jesus was going to be betrayed by Judas and then denied by Peter, and then abandoned by the rest of his followers. Like, they pieced out on him, right? Everyone who said, we're with you to the end, Jesus, they were like, gone in a moment, right? You think Jesus had an idea this was going to happen? Well, of course he did. He told Judas, you're going to betray me. He told Peter, you're going to deny me. Stands to reason that he knew he was going to be by himself on that cross, right? In fact, the Bible's pretty clear that it's only the women that stuck with him. Men. Right? <clears throat> so Jesus knew all those things were coming. Right? He knew that that was going to happen. Right? I don't know about you, but if I knew that my closest friends and confidants were about to abandon me in the moment of my life where I needed them the most, I, I'd, I'd not be super eager to serve them, to love them, to, to humble myself before them. But in John chapter 13, we see Jesus do that exactly. Verse one, it was just before the Passover feast. Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world and to go to his father. Having loved his own who were in the world, listen, right? He now showed them the full extent of his love. You hear that? The gospel writer in, in John before Jesus even gets to the cross, is already declaring that in this moment, Jesus is showing his disciples the full extent of his love. Not a, not, not a part of it, right? Not, not, not a little portion of it. The full extent of the love of Jesus for those that are following him is showed in this moment. What is it? The evening meal was being served. The devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot, son of Simon, to betray Jesus. Important part, part, uh, point here, verse 3. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, that he, had, that he had come from God and was returning to God, right? So we have the declaration of the ultimate authority of Jesus Christ, right? No one more supreme. He is the King. He is the Lord. God had put all things under his power. When when God says all, or when the word says all, you know what it actually means? It means all, right? So there's no Greek translation there, right? All means all, right? All things have been put under the authority of Jesus, right? And so what does Jesus do with the, um, with the revelation of his supreme authority and power? So, it says, he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Now the picture here is akin to um, when it says he took off his outer clothes, his outer cloak or his outer robe, right? 
that would, that's essentially, right, there was an outer robe, which was like our clothes, right? And there was an inner robe, which was your underwear. Right? And so John declares that what Jesus did was stripped down to his underwear so that he could use his clothing to wash the feet of the men that were about to abandon him, and he knew it. It was an understanding of the human condition and an unwillingness to react to it as the world reacts, which is how I would react, right? Like, get out of here, right? It was completely different. Now, as you go down, you see that he and, he and Peter have a little have a little argument about whether Peter's going to let him wash his feet or not, right? When you get down to verse 12, kind of clears up, you got, kind of Jesus wraps the whole moment up in this little teaching moment to his disciples again. He said, when he had finished washing their feet, this is interesting as well, he put his clothes on and returned to his place. So the soaking wet, dirty with a bunch of dudes' feet germs on them, right? Didn't go in the hamper, right? Jesus put them back on, right? He, like, he was wearing the signs of servanthood with him even after the moment. It wasn't, it wasn't for the cameras, so to speak. He put his clothes back on. And he says this, do you understand what I have done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and your teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set for you an example that you should do as I have done for you. I tell you that I tell you the truth, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent them. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. The great, the great like nuance of serving and leading with significance according to kingdom values, right? Which is, um, like, get low, humble yourself. We used this phrase a couple years ago, and it's kind of stuck with some of us here. Race to the back of the line, right? Instead of racing to the front. Race to the back. Right? Hold the bottom of the ladder as others climb it. Race to the back. Lead from the bottom. Right? The great kind of like caveat and admittedly here too with Cameron Linehart, right? This internal struggle is, well, I want significance and I want my, my name to be great. The question is, where do I want it to be great? Where? Because it can be great here, and it can be great here in the world, right? Garner all kinds of significance and leadership and power and authority and position and all of that, right? It can be great there. It can be great here. But if I'm only concerned about making my name great here, my name is going to mean nothing in the courts of heaven. Where do I want my name to be great? What do we want to be known for? 
How do we want to represent the kingdom of God and the lordship of Jesus Christ? As ones who walk around in life perpetually exerting our power and authority over others, or ones who walk around with the clothes of humility and servanthood constantly and forever washing both actually and proverbially the feet of those in our lives. Serving without without recognition of our own position or what we know of that person. Right? I mean, I don't know about you, but like, candidly, I'm super eager to serve people that I know love me. It's easy, right? Like the people that like me, people that like seeing my face, it's like the easiest thing in the world to serve them, right? It's like a joy, right? But what if I, what if I began to adopt the kingdom dynamic that says, right, like whether a person's perception or attitude or, or belief or idea about Cameron Linehart is not taken in, into the formula when, when I'm considering whether or not this, I should serve this person. Because sometimes we look at people that we work with, right, who are lower on the ladder than us, and we'd be like, well, yeah, they'll do what I'll, what I'll tell them to do, and I'll, I don't really... Doesn't really require that I consider them. Right? We do it with people groups. We do it with neighborhoods. Right? We do it with families. My hope, my hope here is that of course that we that you um that the Holy Spirit would take like the example of like the example of Jesus and the truth would press it down into who you are as an individual, right? As a person, of course, right? Um, but we are not just individual Christians who all happen to show up at the same place on a Sunday morning, right? There's actual there there there's actually like extraordinary significance to the community of faith. The church, not as singular person of faith, but the church as community of those who gather in the Spirit of God by faith in Jesus Christ, one Lord, one baptism, one God and Father over us all, right? And the, and the cultural values that we espouse as a community, not just as individuals, is just as important to our representation of the kingdom of God as is our own personal faith. Right? So if we are a community that desires to lay the significance of our name aside so that we may serve with humility and passion and grace those in the world, right? Then we take upon ourselves as a community the character and nature of Jesus Christ. And we represent Him with glory and honor. We bring glory and honor to His name. Not our own. I would rip that sign down, right? Because it's it's not a it's not about our name. It's not about our reputation. It's not about our brand. It's not about our presence. It's not about our prominence. It's not about our authority. It's not about us at all. It is totally and fully and unashamedly eternally about Jesus. 
It's not about conduit. It's about Jesus. We we celebrate we celebrate communion here on a on a regular basis. Um, and uh, so communion like just like serving, right? Is a um something we do as a community of faith because as uh, Jesus um, Jesus didn't just die for the individual, right? He died for us. He sacrificed for sacrificed for us, right? He has forgiven us of our sins. Um Someday, I, I promise I commit to you, like as your pastor, that someday we will take a um, more significant portion of time to talk about like the theological dynamics of communion. I know we, we try to do that a little bit every week, um, every week that we, we take it, but there has, uh, <laughs> and I mean, there's literally been whole eras in church history, right, dedicated towards trying to understand and communicate and articulate the the breadth of the what we call in the church world the sacraments right things like baptism and communion as as two of the most primary examples and then, then the question actually is a little like well what is what is actually going on here right like it's so we bought this at Wegmans right you don't get the, you don't go to heaven and get your bread for communion all right right. And I bought the cups at, I think, the Dollar Tree. And this is grape juice. Probably got some cranberry in it, too, because cranberry gets into everything these days, all right? (laughs) That's beside the point for communion. That's not a theological statement, all right? (laughs) But do you get my point? Is that, like, what what then? If, If we bought this at Wegmans this morning... Right? And the cups that we're drinking out weren't like whittled out of wood by Jesus himself. Then then what exactly are we coming forward and believe and to celebrate and to understand? Well, a few things about it, okay? One is that taking communion requires that we embrace the mystery of faith. That we embrace the beauty of the mystery. That somehow, in some way, in some shape or form, the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross was a perfectly and fully sufficient offering before the Heavenly Father for the forgiveness of our sins. That the breaking of Jesus' body and the shedding of Jesus' blood satisfied the debt of sin that stood between us and our Heavenly Father. And that and that by expressing faith in the work and life of Jesus Christ, including his work on the cross, we receive the gift of forgiveness that Jesus accomplished on our behalf. When we come forward, we come forward to receive. To receive, number one, a gift of remembrance. The elements, as they stand before us, the bread and the cup, 
serve as practical, tangible. I can touch them. I can smell them. I can see them. I can taste them. I can hear the sound of the ripping of the bread. It, it stands as a, a tangible, um, um, like right in front of your right in front of your being reminder, right, of the offering of Jesus Christ, the gift of Jesus Christ. And then we dip, we rip off the bread and we dip it in the cup and we take it, right? And we allow the taste of that, right, to evoke within us a holy remembrance of the gift that has been offered to us in Jesus. And the great dynamic here, right, is that we receive that gift with celebration and excitement and gratitude. But it also feels like this moment where we got to come forward in silence and gentleness and humility and almost sometimes a sense of brokenness. And we must do those things all at the same time. And there's mystery wrapped up in the work that the Holy Spirit is doing in that moment to offer us the gift of Jesus once again as a remembrance, right? But to also be in a spirit of celebration. Thank you, Lord, for this gift. Thank you for what you have given to me. I don't fully understand it. I can't comprehend what happened in heaven in that moment. But what I do believe is that the gift offered to me in Jesus Christ is for me and I receive it by faith. I receive it by faith. And I will walk in faith in the reality of the gift of Jesus Christ until the moment where I have more clarity. Until the moment where, hey, it all makes perfect theological sense and I can draw you a flowchart and a Venn diagram or whatever thing makes your theological heart happy to make it make sense. I don't know, right? But that day will come soon. For me, it hasn't come yet. Because I come to the table of the Lord trying to put together all of the theological pieces in my mind, trying to make it make sense why a gift like this would be offered to a person like me, and I can't make it make sense, and so I receive it by faith in the goodness of God. That is why we don't have a personal requirement on whether or not, for instance, your kids can come forward and receive communion. That's, that's a choice that you can make, right? That's a choice that they can make on their own. But it seems, it seems fair for me to say if there, there is some theological mystery wrapped up in my receiving of communion, certainly I'm not going to require that a, that, that a child be able to articulate a full theology of the atonement in order to come up and receive the gift of Jesus Christ. We receive the gift not because we know it up here, but because we believe it here. And Jesus had some really clear things to tell us about the purity and the strength of the belief of children. And so, if you desire that your kids would come up and take communion with us, they are welcome. Um, you do not need to be a member of this church or any church to receive communion with us this morning. We take communion uh, by a method called intinction, which um, just is a fancy way of saying you come up through the center aisle, you're going to rip off a piece of the bread from the loaf, okay? dip it in the cup, and you can take communion at that time if you'd like, or you can hold on to it until you're back at your seat, or you can come to you can go to the kneelers on either side of the table this morning. And you can spend some time in prayer there um, as as long as as long as you like. All right, um, and then you're finished taking or finished receiving or finished praying. You can return to your seats through the uh, through the outside aisles. Uh, Pastor Luke will help me uh, serve this morning. We'll have the worship team come up uh, first, and I will or we will serve serve them first.
the body of Jesus Christ. Broken for the forgiveness of our sins. And the blood of Jesus Christ shed for the forgiveness of our sins. Luke, the body, and the blood of Jesus Christ broken and shed for you. Cameron, the body, and the blood of Jesus Christ broken and shed for you. Amen. Thank you, Jesus.